0: Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. For over 50 years, FAU Harbor Branch has been in relentless pursuit of ocean science for a better world. Located in Fort Pierce, Florida, FAU Harbor Branch's cutting-edge research focuses on marine science, ecosystem conservation, aquaculture, the connection between ocean and human health, and technological innovation and national defense. During my time as part of the undergraduate Semester by the Sea program, I learned so much about the ocean and what it takes to become a good scientist. The programs and opportunities offered at FAU Harbor Branch have continued to swell since. To learn more, please visit fau.edu slash hboi. That's fau.edu slash hboi. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's episode. Question do you know what corals get stressed about? Current events. What kind of decorations do fish hang on their doors? Coral wreaths. My guest today is Dr. Joshua Voss. He is the executive director of NOAA's Cooperative Institute for Ocean Exploration, Research, and Technology, and an associate research professor at Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. Josh's research interests? Coral. In today's episode, we chat about coral reefs, both shallow and mesophotic, which means slightly deeper water, their health, how they're explored. Josh is a certified technical rebreather diver and scuba instructor who has completed over 1,500 scientific dives and led more than 35 scientific expeditions. He shares how his fieldwork is accomplished how crime scene investigation methods translates to coral, and how you, as a stakeholder, can get involved. Please enjoy. Josh, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.
1: Thank you, Kara. It's really nice to be here and nice to see you. It's been a while.
0: It has been a while. It's fun to chat with you. So for listeners, Josh was one of my professors at Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute during my time there for a semester by the sea, And it was lots of fun. Josh is a great teacher. My first question for you, could you explain what the flower banks are and why they're so important?
1: (laughs) Sure. So Flower Garden Banks National Marine Sanctuary is this really cool area in the northwestern part of the Gulf of Mexico. It's not an area that like if if we were to give you a world map and say where the best coral reefs in the world, very few people would point to the northwest Gulf of Mexico. But there is fantastic reef there right on the edge of the continental margin. So almost 100 miles offshore. But that area has arguably some of the highest coral cover anywhere in the continental U.S. by far. So areas of like over 50 percent coral cover, which is really, really healthy in comparison to other parts of Gulf of Mexico, Caribbean, etc. So it's this kind of amazing place uh, in America's own backyard that not a whole lot of folks know about.
0: Right. And it's really fascinating because most people think of coral reefs as, you know, shallow water, maximum 60 feet, and then, you know, the beautiful colors and everything. And that's what the Flower Garden Banks offers, but in much deeper. So what does research look like when you're in these deeper waters, you're not strapping a tank onto your back and diving down and checking these reefs out.
1: So the top of flower gardens, you can, it comes up to about uh, 60, 70 feet up at the top. And so any kind of open water certified diver that's comfortable in those depths can get out there and, and see it for themselves. But the reefs there extend all the way down to about 350 feet. So for those deepest depths, we usually use ROVs or remotely operated vehicles, essentially underwater robots that have the capability of taking really good imagery and streaming that imagery in real time up a, up a cord back to the ship. And then there's also usually collection capabilities on those ROVs as well. So when we see really interesting corals or interesting other samples, that ROV can snag a bit of it and bring it up for either identifying it or doing other analyses as well. In kind of the depths from roughly, say, 130 feet down to about 200 feet or a little bit beyond that, we can use technical diving. So technical diving simply just means going into decompression on purpose. So most divers are familiar with no decompression diving down to about 130 feet um, where you're looking at your computer or you're looking at a table and trying not to accumulate too much bubbles in your bloodstream when you go into decompression diving, you're on purpose gonna let that happen and then you're gonna come up in a really slow way to let those bubbles start to off-gas. So we'll use different kinds of configurations. We can use mixes that include helium to offset narcosis. We can use closed circuit rebreathers that allow us to breathe the same gas over and over again and it'll scrub out our CO2 and add back in oxygen for us. To allow us to stay down there for a much longer amount of time. So that gives, you know, I still think that the best way to see and observe nature in the water is with our own eyes. And so when we can get humans to those places, we get the most intuition out of it and and often some of the best data as well.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You're physically there versus using a robot, you know, tethered to a cord and you're. I mean, it's kind of like a video game at that point, right? There's not a lot of connection.
1: (laughs) In fact, the controls are... We've had some grad students who have gaming experience that can hop on the ROV controls and be pretty successful quite quickly.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. So who is manning the controls? Is it mostly you, or is there somebody designated that is like the ROV controller?
1: So we usually have a couple different folks doing different uh, jobs on the ROV. So... Often ROV teams have kind of these amazing folks that are a hybrid of pilots and engineers and biologists kind of all rolled into one. So we've worked with UNCW, University of North Carolina Wilmington, quite a bit. They have an undersea vehicles program uh, led by Jason White, who's a really talented individual. So he's the ones that has built up this ROV, created all of its capability, maintains it, and offers that service to all kinds of scientists across the world, really. And so we'll partner with his team and often we'll assist in launching the ROV. And then more and more over time, we've gotten to the point where he'll be piloting the ROV and then I, or sometimes another graduate student, will be operating the manipulator that goes in and collects the sample itself.
0: What kind of samples are you collecting?
1: So we're usually collecting corals. And a lot of that is to look at population genetics, kind of how corals are connected to one another and how these populations of corals persist over big geographic ranges. If we see diseased corals, sometimes we'll take a small sample of corals so that we can try to diagnose what might be going on with those corals and and understand more what kind of threats these corals are facing. We'll also collect things like soft corals, sponges, uh, the sponges in particular, we've been collecting a lot because so many of them are either not well characterized and new species that have, that have not been discovered yet, or some of the sponges may have some biochemical properties that make them potential pharmaceuticals. So we'll hand off some of those sponges to Amy Wright and Esther Guzman at Harbor Branch, um, and they'll take them down this pathway where they can screen those chemicals in the sponges for potential activity against you know, known human diseases.
0: That's fascinating. So, how often are you diving, tech diving, or using the ROV? Is it kind of an even split?
1: So, we've done cruises where we try to do both, and it's not an efficient use of time or money because you're spending the money then to have the ROV and the tech capabilities on the boat, and it's essentially impossible to use both of those at the same time. So, what we've started to do is go to dedicated ROV cruises that are designed for mapping and characterization. And then once we know the spots that are really the areas we want to get divers on to collect samples, then we'll we'll do a subsequent cruise to those spots with the divers. And divers are still way more efficient at collecting samples per unit time than the ROV is, especially for corals. So, you know, typically we've been doing kind of two or three research cruises a year. Usually one of those is ROV and a couple of those are tech diving.
0: Really cool. Are you tech diving? Yeah. That's awesome. So you've done the breathers and everything. Mm -hmm. And that's like one of the things with diving that makes you feel disruptive is having the bubbles. So I feel like you're just a little bit more ninja status when you go in. Have you noticed like a difference?
1: Yeah. The fish certainly behave differently when you're not, you know, the rebreathers, you're not, you're still venting occasionally, especially on the way back up, right? You have to get rid of that excess gas as as it expands. But when you're kind of on the bottom and hanging out, a couple things, number one, like you stop worrying about gas consumption and when that's going to end your dive because it's not an issue anymore. And the, the fish are less afraid So you are more likely to have fish kind of closer to you than they might be otherwise. The other thing that's really interesting about it, kind of two things. One, so part of your breathing mix is helium. So that, you know, just like if you've inhaled a balloon, it gives you that high squeaky voice. But the other thing that's cool about the rebreather is that you have a greater kind of volume of air in that area in front of your mouth. So you can communicate with your with your dive buddies much more easily on a rebreather than you can trying to talk through the loud exhaust of a regular second stage.
0: Oh, uh-huh. all sorts of perks. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so I want to chat a minute about the importance, not just of flower garden banks, but coral reefs as a whole. We talk a little bit about some of the ecosystem services they provide, but kind of how do they tie in both the... Shallow water reef and these deeper water reefs.
1: Sure. So, you know, here in Florida in particular, we're extremely reliant on coral reefs. They extend from, you know, out here off our coast in, in the Treasure Coast area, all the way down and around past Key West and out into the Gulf. They do a couple of really big, important things for us. The first is fisheries habitat. So they create an amazing amount of three dimensional structure and productivity that drives the entire kind of fish scene here in Florida. And so really important for commercial fishing as well as recreational fishing. Other big thing is that that 3D structure they make, especially for those reefs that are a little bit closer to shore are amazing wave breaks. So, you know, every time we have these big hurricanes rolling through, if we didn't have coral reefs here off the coast of Florida, you would see a whole lot more of those catastrophic shots where you know homes are falling off the beach during a hurricane. The, the coral reefs literally protect us from those waves during big storms. And then the last thing here is that we have a really big tourism industry that's completely surrounded by coral reef ecotourism. Divers coming to snorkel here, or snorkel or dive here in our waters. We have individual reefs in the Keys that get more than a million visitors a year, and so part of our lifestyle here in Florida is connected to this idea of water, the life that's in the water, and the, the kind of benefit that we see on our beaches is literally from those reefs and the protection they give us and the aesthetic value that they give, give us. So. I would say the aesthetics, the biological services in terms of fish, and then the the physical protection that they give are the three biggest things.
0: Good points. Yeah. You know, people think about the conservation aspect of it a lot, which is super important, but tying in the human factor is kind of what gets policy and everything pushed forward. So I like to bring that up here as well.
1: Sure. I mean, reefs have an incredible... Just intrinsic value is amazing habitats, right? You now, whether or not they're good for us, coral reefs are cool. But when you're making the argument about doing things to help protect reefs, tying in the benefits to humans is usually a, a good way to help get various different political groups on your side, especially if it's going to take money to achieve the conservation goal that you want.
0: Very true. What does a healthy reef really look like? I mean, we assume high biodiversity, ideally low disease. What are some other factors? I know there's certain species that are present that will show that it's healthier, like diadema urchins, right? So what are some of the the parameters that you look for that determine whether a reef is healthy?
1: So I think that it's hard globally to say a healthy reef looks like X. Uh, because there's so much variation in, in biodiversity, in reef structure, in the kind of ecosystem functions that reefs are serving in different locations. If you were to compare reefs that are really healthy in the Caribbean, you know, they'll have a max coral biodiversity of like 60 or 70 species. Versus you go to the Indo-Pacific and there's thousands of species or at least hundreds of species of corals living in those areas. And so just a raw number of species or, or raw kind of measure of biodiversity kind of you have to have this lens of what function is that serving how is that allowing that coral reef to thrive so usually what we're looking at is not just static biodiversity but trends over time is the biodiversity increasing staying the same or going down is the coral cover increasing staying the same or go- going down is disease increasing, staying the same, or going down. And then there's other things that are on on reefs that we would consider like indicators of things that are relatively good. Large fishes, large predators like sharks are usually a good indicator that the, the trophic levels, all of those food web levels going from producers up to the top predators are intact. If you don't see those big predators, That usually is a sign that there's something with that ecosystem function that's starting to decline. And then most recently here in Florida, we've kind of had two big things that have have indicated some losses of coral reef health. The first is we've had a huge disease outbreak called Stony Coral Tissue Loss Disease that has spread throughout the entirety of our reef track now and is actively killing corals. So that's obviously a bad sign. And then there's also been some evidence of, a, of a, perhaps either a reprisal of a previous disease of a long-spined urchin or perhaps a new disease. So urchins perform this really important role of grazing on a reef, right? Like eating down all of that algae so that the algae isn't competing with the coral. And if the urchins are lost, that means that there's one less check on those algae and they can start to outcompete the coral. So presence of virgins is usually a good sign. Presence of some of these top predators is usually a good sign. And then relatively high coral cover and diversity are good signs too.
0: It kind of really highlighted the importance of the baseline data, right? Like you mentioned, you don't know that the biodiversity of that area unless you've seen it before. And you can measure that decline.
1: So if you only start measuring, you know, after a problem starts, you really can't accurately say what might be lost or gained. So yeah, you definitely need ongoing studies of baseline data are totally necessary for any of these kind of questions of relative health and what we might do to improve health
0: on a reef. Yeah, those are really good points. So when you were graduating college, you knew you wanted to go to grad school right away. Why, why corals, why coral diseases?
1: Ah, good question. It's a weird kind of thing to study, right? I don't think very many people wake up going, ooh, I'm going to study coral disease. So I really was very fortunate to have an incredibly inspirational science teacher in sixth, seventh, eighth grade. His name was Joe Carpinito. So I grew up in Orlando and went to a school there called St. Margaret Mary. He was a science teacher there and he was absolutely fascinating. You know, in, in seventh and eighth grade, we were doing like full on big dissections of sharks, organic chemistry, field trips to the Keys, these things that like just totally engaged us and kind of kicked off my interest in science. When I got to um, undergrad, I went to Elon University up in North Carolina. Um, I wanted that kind of quintessential college experience. So liberal arts college, brick, beautiful trees, all that kind of stuff but my heart was still in kind of marine science overall. So I started looking for different opportunities to get back to that every summer. Um, I went to Duke Marine Lab one summer and and worked and took classes there. And then I had an amazing opportunity to go do an internship at the Perry Institute for Marine Science on Lee Stocking Island in the Bahamas. And so I was between junior and senior year. Diving four or five, dives a day, completely living the the island lifestyle. It was absolutely fantastic. And I was hooked. And so as I started to think about grad school, I'd always had in the back of my mind kind of previous interests in human health. So I had shadowed some doctors when I was in high school. I was most interested in things like pathology. So I think house, but this was before House. And I then kind of had this marine science side. And so when I started to see coral diseases out there in the Bahamas, the idea of kind of bringing the tools you would use to try to figure out human pathology to a marine system became really attractive. And so I started looking for opportunities for grad school that would allow me to get back uh, to the Bahamas and to work on these coral health issues. I also very distinctly remember, like, maybe halfway through my sophomore year, finding out that often grad students that are doing research in marine science get paid to go to grad school, and I was floored and excited by that. It's not a lot, but the idea of getting paid to learn was really attractive to me. And so I applied to several different programs, but ended up at Florida International University working with Lori Richardson, who was one of the most well-known coral disease people at that time. And being in Miami gave me really quick and easy access to go to all these different places in the Caribbean. So when a disease outbreak popped up places, I literally was 12 minutes from the Miami airport and could quickly fly to the Bahamas, fly to, you know, Stacia, Dominica, all of these other places to collect data and collect samples and work on coral disease.
0: How fun is that? You're just jet setting all over the Caribbean collecting sample. Hang on, I, I have an emergency. I need to get on a plane to go collect coral.
1: <laughs> it's not too shabby.
0: Oh, that's incredible. So I'm curious. I mean, not to not to date you at all, Josh, but you didn't go to grad school last year. So I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious what how has that changed? I mean you were studying diseases in grad school and you're still studying diseases and you've had quite a, I mean, you have tons of research papers and you've done quite a bit. How much has changed or remained the same during that span? Good
1: question. So I'll date myself. I finished my PhD in, in 2006. At that time, we were just starting to get to the point where molecular tools were becoming cheap enough That you could use them for environmental questions not just human health questions and you know like many kind of young marine scientists what we all really want to do is be out scuba diving and everything else but i remember going to this seminar by dr d mills who was a faculty member and ended up becoming a a committee member and friend at fiu and she was giving this talk on how they were using microbial profiling to place a shoe print and dust on someone's shoe at a crime scene based on the exact match between the microbial profiles on the bottom of that shoe and at that crime scene. And I remember thinking, like, this is totally a technique that I could use to try to study this weird microbial disease called black band disease that has all of these different components in it that no one seems to be able to sort out. So I would have never guessed that I would go down this molecular route, but got totally sucked into it then. And I think the biggest change is that since then, over the past roughly 15 years now, all of those techniques have become cheaper, faster, higher resolution. And so now we're, we're literally to the point where we can sample corals and over the course of a month, genotype those corals, compare the population genetics, look at the microbes that are associated with them identify all of the different algal symbionts that are inside those corals and what that might mean. And I'm, I, I just never envisioned that we would do that as regularly in every project as we now do. That's, I think for me, the biggest change. Technology. <laughs> and then in terms of the field, like, especially in the past, so this disease that we're dealing with now in Florida has been around since about 2014. Okay. It's far worse than, than any of the kind of other background diseases that, that we had seen. There, there's been some diseases called white band and white plague that wiped out the staghorn and elkhorn coral in Florida and in other parts of the Caribbean as well. That happened in the early 80s, kind of before my time when I was like, you know, five or four. But then there was this lull of kind of background levels of disease Not huge epidemics and outbreaks, but then 2015, 16, 17, we've gotten back to this point of like major epidemics and outbreaks and diseases that have quickly spread across the entire Caribbean. So that's been heartbreaking. And and honestly, like I had very actively tried to get out of the coral disease game because it's a little depressing at times and was focusing almost exclusively on coral exploration, discovery, conservation. And then when this disease outbreak happened, it just kind of immediately sucked me right back in, right? But what's been very encouraging this time around is that the response of the, of the coral science community and the management community has been so much more proactive and collaborative than I've ever seen before. We have these huge groups of literally hundreds of of different researchers and managers that regularly meet together um, once a month, and we present, discuss all these issues, and share ideas, and it's really fostered this much more collaborative approach to these problems that I've ever seen before, and I love that.
0: Yeah, so could you describe what the stony coral tissue loss looks like and I mean, what are you seeing? You're saying it's like wiping out entire reefs. Is, I mean, is that kind of the what you're seeing in mean, the Keys all the way up the entire Florida eastern seaboard?
1: So it's it's only on shallow corals. It's not been observed on any of the deepwater species like oculiner or anything like that off the coast here. But it it's this very stark white skeleton that's left behind, and it's a, a necrotic band, a necrotic lesion, that advances across the coral colony and completely disrupts and and wipes out the tissue. There's some evidence that it could be bacterial or viral. So we've done some intervention work, um, as have colleagues at Nova Southeastern University, like Karen Neely and Brian Walker. And all of us have shown that using this amoxicillin and this special base 2B can be like 95% effective at stopping individual lesions which would suggest maybe it's microbial. There's been a bunch of histological work that suggests that it might be viral. So we still don't know what's causing it. And that's that's a challenge when we're trying to to manage against it, right? If, If you don't know what the pathogen is. So I think that's a big challenge. The other thing that's been very different about this disease versus others is it's got a very broad host range. So a lot of diseases affect two, three coral species, This has at least 25 coral species that are susceptible to it. And so there's kind of early species that tend to catch it first, the highly susceptible species, things like maize corals or pillar corals. And then there's these other kind of intermediately susceptible species, things like star corals, Montastri cavernosa, for example. And then there's some that kind of seem fairly resistant to SCTLD. Um, and a lot of those are kind of smaller weedy species like mustard hill coral, for example. So the biggest difference for this disease has been how quickly it spreads, huge host range, and the, you know at individual locations, we've seen prevalence or the percent of corals affected of over 80%. So really high amounts of impact on those reefs once it does hit. And again, it's now spread, you know, pretty much across the entire Caribbean. We think that we may have have seen some evidence of this in Bonaire for the first time, which is particularly heartbreaking because Bonaire is one of those places that has, you know, amazing, you know, 60 to 80% coral cover in places. So it's a huge problem. It's a challenge for sure.
0: Do we know where it came from? Like what causes it?
1: So we, we still don't know what causes it, like I said, but it started near the Port of Miami in 2014. It followed a major dredging project um, in the Port of Miami. So there's several different hypotheses that perhaps there was release of some kind of agent that was in that sediment that then was able to invade and become a new pathogen within corals. It could have you know, caused some kind of switch or it could have been literally evolution of a new pathogenic pathway for a bacterium or a virus that, that may have been released during that time. But the spread of it afterwards, this kind of moving north up the reef track and south uh, down into the Keys, really suggested that it was a novel pathogen rather than some kind of environmental change that was releasing a pathogen or allowing something to become pathogenic that was already there. So that the way it spread really suggests that this is a novel pathogen introduction of some kind.
0: You're playing detective, sleuthing it out. It's, kind, I mean, it's depressing to talk about, I'm not going to lie, but it's also really interesting to kind of look at the source and kind of when really what's going on, you know, if you can look at it without the framework of reefs are dying. It's interesting to see how things in one spot in the ocean can spread and affect so much, you know?
1: Absolutely. And I think too, the ocean's just so vast, right? And so we kind of, the history of humans interaction with the management of the ocean has always been this kind of, Oh, it's so big, no matter what we, what, no matter what we do, it doesn't really impact it. And that's whether, that's how we handle have handled pollution, it's how we've handled fishing, it's how we've handled coastal development, these things that kind of like the ocean's so big, the ocean will be just fine. And perhaps this is an example of, you know, our actions in one place led to this cascading effect across a huge geographic space in the ocean that I don't think any of us would have predicted. So we definitely need to be more mindful of how we are stewards of the resource for both protecting it because it's valuable in and of itself, but also to protect all those ecosystem services that it gives us. You know, If we want healthy coral reefs to continue to provide productivity, fish, etc., they've got to be there in the first place. So it's up to us to protect them and to help restore them.
0: So that leads us really nicely into management right? So there's been some changes going on in different management areas. How have things shifted in the last few years as far as like protecting the reef and different structures and controls to help keep our reefs healthy?
1: Sure. So we have a whole bunch of kind of different management structures out there at different levels that can try to conserve reef habitat, conserve the ecosystem services that those reefs provide. One of the best is the National Marine Sanctuary system. So for example, we have Flower Garden Banks National Marine Sanctuary, Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. A lot of the work that we did in Flower Garden Banks was all around this idea of trying to give data and to create a story so that the stakeholders that were, that were involved in Flower Garden Banks would get on board with expanding that sanctuary. And that was incredibly successful. So the the Sanctuary Advisory Council ultimately made the recommendation to increase flower garden banks from three to 17 banks that are under protection. And it represents like a roughly 300% increase in the amount of coral area that's protected. Um, And that just went into, you know, wasn't acted and passed and came into the management sphere in 2021. So that was a huge win for, or several teams that had all been working in flower garden banks for decades. So that that was great. The same kind of motivation is starting to happen now in the Florida Keys as well. So they've just rolled out the new blueprint for management in the Florida Keys. And part of that is to expand the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary to include some of these areas out to the west of Florida Keys that we've identified as important coral reef areas, areas just off of the dry tortugas, pulley ridge, areas like that. And in all of these cases, there's huge opportunity for public engagement and public scoping, right? They they have meetings to allow people to come and voice their opinions. They give people opportunities to, to respond online or via phone or via letter. And so it, it is a community approach. The benefit of that is that It seeks to serve the broader community and its overall management goals. The drawback of that is that it usually takes quite a bit of time to come to consensus when you have so many, literally just so many opinions to hear. And then if those opinions do differ, how do you resolve those differences and build consensus? And so Florida Keys is going through that process right now, and they've been having several scoping meetings and and events where people can come and learn about the potential plans that the sanctuary is going to engage in. The superintendent there, Sarah Fangman, is a really excellent communicator and and a very patient person who understands that there's, there's people that have differing opinions in the Keys. But I think ultimately, if we want to preserve the idea of of what we think the Keys is and what draws tourists to the Keys and draws people to the Keys, Um, we're going to have to be more aggressive about coral and fisheries preservation in the Keys. Then here locally on our Treasure Coast area. So we've lived in an area that for a long time didn't have a whole lot in the way of, of coral protection. And so several of us have been working to try to remedy that And in 2018, the uh, law was passed that essentially created a coral ecosystem conservation area that goes from St. Lucie Inlet all the way down to the top of Biscayne National Park, essentially. And that's been named for Kristen Jacobs in her honor. And we're just now getting to the point in this next year where they're going to start to develop the first ever management plan for this new coral ECA. So it's going to be, you know, in the, in the case of flower gardens and Florida Keys, it's existing management plans that were either expanding or changing. Now we're kind of starting from scratch. And we've, of course, learned all of the things that you need to do to protect corals from all of these other areas. But it's a new group of stakeholders, a new group of agencies and counties that are going to be involved. And so there's going to be lots of opportunities for those of us that live here to engage and, and try to protect the reefs that make the Treasure Coast the amazing place that it is.
0: So, if people want to learn more about either the reef tract north, you know, here in Saint, the St. Lucie Inlet south, or in the Keys, where's the best place to learn more about it and kind of get involved?
1: Great questions. So, the best place for the Keys is definitely the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary's webpage. And there's a whole dedicated web page for the new management plan rollout and gobs of information that can be sought there. Because the Kristen Jacobs Coral Reef Ecosystem Conservation Area is so new, it's now kind of the the bits that are out there you're going to find that are managed by Florida DEP, Department of Environmental Protection. So if you just search for Kristen Jacobs Coral ECA, you'll find some some good pages about that. I expect there to be more opportunities rolling out here in the next year as those public scoping meetings start to come out. There's not any scheduled yet, but there will be.
0: Well, I'm curious to learn more and and see where this goes. It's exciting because you always hear, you know, the St. Lucie Inlet is the most northern point of the southeast Florida coral reef track, right? And it's something that i it's always been a really cool pride source for me it's where it's where i live it's where i grew up but there hasn't been much protection there's there is a state park right there and there are very limited protections with that but it's exciting to have that special designation
1: i think too it'll the idea of it being this big broad space should help to kind of have a better integrated spatial management plan there's a whole lot of different influences interest and interests across like think about how different our coastline is and coastal uses are from saint lucie inlet down to the bottom of fort lauderdale and so trying to integrate in a way that the entire reef community there is is conserved and supported i think is going to be a good thing there's going to be some questions about fishing right so we live in an area where both commercial and recreational fishers are really important to our identity and to our economy. And so some of the challenges I think that are, that are going to be coming is how do we allow fishing in a way that's not destructive or not too much fishing? So how do we limit the amount of bottom damage from fisheries associated things? So, Lines getting snagged on the bottom and and getting tangled all across the reef. Anchoring in areas where we know that might be destructive to corals. These are things we need to try to eliminate. And if we can kind of put policies in place that result in corals doing better in the Treasure Coast area, then you get the kickback of there's more fish available to the anglers as well. So hopefully we can all kind of get swimming in the same direction so that we can get a good management plan in place.
0: I have faith. It'll work. (laughs) I would think that the fishermen have seen a change, you know, even, even if they're young, even in their lifetime, they've probably seen a change and are interested in making it better.
1: Yeah. I think the challenge in the fishing community is going to be those who care about kind of the resource for future generations, their families, their kids, their neighbors versus those that are only worried about the fish they can catch in you know the next 10 years for themselves. So there's there's probably going to need to be some pressure on that from that former group on that latter group to help get things in line.
0: I think the people that are more aware of the future and the impacts, I think that number is growing significantly. So mm-hmm. like I said, I have faith. It'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. It really will be.
1: I think too, like they're the other kind of faction that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. And, and maybe it's a, a resource that we can start to tap to aid conservation know literally the the reason people want to move to the treasure coast is not because we have like amazing architecture or we have awesome mountains nearby or these you know amazing cultural opportunities people are coming here because of the ocean resource simple as that and so making sure that that we kind of remind people that our entire economic model in this region is, uh, is around the idea of we have amazing water will also help to, to galvanize some folks and, and get them more vocal about coastal conservation.
0: That's really good points. Really good points. Something, and we're going to take a total left turn here, something that I found really fascinating was that there are species of coral that live both in the shallow reefs, and in these mesophotic, deeper water reefs. Mm-hmm. How did you even begin to like look for that, uncover that? Or was it just kind of like, we've studied these, we have these genotypes already in our database, and look, they match. How did that even come about?
1: So most of figuring that out happened before genotyping was even a thing. So folks like John Reed at Harbor Branch, who've been working on Oculina reefs here off the coast, since the 70s they recognized the morphological similarities between some of these shallow water oculina and these deep oculina and essentially you can you could take individual colonies and transplant them from deep to shallow or from shallow to deep and they would switch modes so in the deep there's not enough light for photosynthesis so they don't bother having algae they totally switch to just focusing on eating zooplankton, eating little crustaceans out of the water, and surviving that way. But then when you move them into the shallows, they'll acquire those algal symbionts in their tissues and start becoming hybrid farmers and eaters, where they'll both make energy from photosynthesis and still continue to do that heterotrophic feeding. And so they did all kinds of cool experiments, transplanting corals out in the field, and then other folks did experiments where they manipulated those corals in the lab Essentially, if you put the corals in the dark long enough, then having algae becomes pointless. They don't have algae and they just rely on, on feeding. I and mean, that totally makes sense, yeah. right? Um, it wasn't until like late aughts, I want to say, a researcher that's now in Texas, Ron Aiton, he did some comparative genomics of oculina across kind of a broad range and confirmed what folks already knew that these, that these Oculina that were in multiple different places are likely all the same species, maybe a few species differences, but very close to one another in terms of evolution.
0: Cool. Yeah. I really like that. We didn't need technology to make that. I mean, it was like a nice confirmation, (laughs) right? But like human eyeballs work and the brains work.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, you know, Genetics is cool. Molecular biology is cool. But almost always, if you really want to know the answer, the answer lies in doing something experimentally. And so even if you do an experiment that's coupled with the genetics, it's doing that experiment, doing a transplant or some kind of manipulation where you see how things respond. That's where you answer the answer kind of those fundamental questions about, you know, what's really going on here? The one place that genetics has helped tremendously and molecular work has helped tremendously is looking at this idea of population connectivity. How do larvae get from one place to another and allow new populations to establish or persist? And the reason that's really important for corals is that corals live hundreds of years. So a marine scientist that wants to like study population movement in corals can't effectively Um, it's not like tracking birds that are migrating right and so to look at these literally you know decades or centuries of movement you have to use molecular tools that give you a sneak peek into what's been going on for the past you know 50 or 100 or 150 years Um, that's really the only way to do it
0: that makes sense yeah, That's cool to think about. So along, along that same vein, the mesophotic reefs are healthier than the shallow water reefs, right?
1: In general, yes. So these mesophotic reefs that are kind of down below that recreational diving left, depth and then down to where they can still have enough photosynthesis to, to have sturdy corals that are doing photosynthesis, kind of the balance of that mesophotic area. Part of our exploration work and has really been focused on this whole, well, where are these mesophotic reefs and what are they like? For two reasons. One, shallow coral reefs have been so degraded and impacted. We want to know, well, what about what's going on in these deeper areas? Is it at risk or not? And then number two, can these deeper areas potentially help buffer the shallow areas and help them to recover by providing larvae that may come up into the shallow areas, for example. Yep. We've gone looking for mesophotic reefs in a lot of places, all across Northwest Gulf, out off the end of Florida, around all of Cuba, Belize, Bahamas, etc. Long story short, almost everywhere we've gone looking for these mesophotic reefs, and we weren't You know, looking blindly, we're using things like multi-beam bathymetry maps to to guide us. But we're finding these mesophotic reefs everywhere. And in general, the rates of things like disease are much lower on these mesophotic reefs. In general, the amount of detrimental fishing impacts, things like line, anchors, etc., are lower on these mesophotic reefs. And then, in general, just by nature of where they are, they tend to be a little bit further removed from potential coastal impacts. So things like runoff, nutrients, pollution, etc. Excuse me. And so, they are healthier in general. And then the next question is, can they serve as, ref- as refuges? Can they help our shallow reefs to recover? And I've got several grad students that have been working on that. And there's other teams at other places as well. And for the few species that we've been able to look at so far, the answer seems to be it really depends on where you are. So in some cases, the mesophotic reefs are really well connected to the shallow reefs. And there's evidence that they'll be able to help them to recover. In other places, there's really distinct differences between the shallow and mesophotic reefs suggesting that there's not a lot of connectivity between them. And then the crazy thing is we've seen evidence of connectivity from like Mesoamerica and Belize to Cuba and the Florida Keys across, you know, literally hundreds of kilometers. And I'm not suggesting that one little coral larva is swimming 100 kilometers, but over a couple of generations there seems to be this stepping stone effect where they are connected. And so that may mean that like long-term population persistence of corals in Florida is linked to success of corals in Mesoamerica and Cuba. And so that opens this whole kind of international management realm that we're going to have to tackle. And we're, we're kind of already starting to know this for things like lobsters. You know, a huge amount of the lobsters that come into the Keys every year come from areas outside of the U.S., um, but we're going to need international cooperation and management for several different coral reef organisms for them to survive.
0: Again, it's mind boggling to think mm-hmm. the ocean's so big, right? But it's really not. It's all connected and, and you're seeing it and you're like putting, piecing those patterns together. I think that's, that's amazing. Well, Josh, I feel like we could chat about this for probably all day. Uh, <laughs> But I have a few questions that I like to ask at the end of each episode. You ready? Ready. What's your favorite sea creature and why?
1: Ooh, I would say sea cucumbers in general. Ooh. Because they have such crazy different life history things that they can do. So there's, you know, ones that can crawl across the bottom. There's ones that during, the middle of the winter will on purpose liquefy and eject their intestines and go dormant for four months. There's ones that can swim in the middle of the water column. Sea cucumbers. They're cool.
0: They are cool. I don't think I've had anybody say sea cucumbers before. It's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) What does the ocean mean to you?
1: Oh, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. Literally and figuratively. It I gotta be honest, for me it it means two different things personally and professionally. Like personally it's taking my kids to the beach or sailing or you know my wife and I met in the Bahamas on the water kind of thing. But then like the analytical me for for that the ocean is literally like what sustains life on our planet and is what is this huge responsibility for us to make sure we manage in an effective way if we want if we want life as we know it at least on the planet to continue successfully
0: yeah so with that how do you what do you do to bridge that gap right like you have as a human, as stewards of this planet, it's something that I recognize, right, and that you try to bring into your personal life, are there certain things that you do in your personal life that you feel like bring, bridges that gap and like makes you a better steward for the ocean?
1: I think one of the things that I'd like to see more of, and I see less of lately, is that like we need to be more willing to tell stories that inspire us and others about the ocean or about coastal conservation in general. The, the political divides within communities, within families, etc., have almost made discussion of certain topics that might be polarizing, like taboo, like, mm-hmm. Oh gosh, I don't even want to bring it up because I don't want to have yet another argument with my buddy at the bar, with my family member over dinner. Right. But when we don't have those conversations, the, the kind of ethos of conservation for coastal communities and, and the ocean starts to get lost. Yeah. So that's one of the things I would say I would encourage the most. Like, I still do it, and I try to encourage others to do it. Just bring it up and talk about it. Yeah. And most of the time, we end up kind of on the same side. We may not agree on the tactics to get there, But the idea that the ocean is important to our community is one that everyone can kind of wrap their heads around.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects, up to three, what would you use the money
1: for? Up to three? Oh, I didn't know that up to three. Up to three. I think I would, number one, I'm happy to say, I don't think I would change a whole lot from what I've been doing for the past 15 years. You win. It tells me that I'm kind of on the right track, which is good. But I think the, the whole seeking out new coral reef habitats, finding them, characterizing them, and then working to get them protected in some way is the most important thing I could do regardless of, of the funding. And Going out to sea is expensive. Ships are expensive. ROVs are expensive. And so if I had unlimited funds, that's what I would put most of it towards.
0: Great use. What's your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be an amazing day out in the field, everything went right, or it could be a day where things happened and it just makes a really great story now.
1: (laughs) There's lots of those. I mean, I have to say that my favorite was meeting my wife on Lee Stocking Island. So I still like remember the day that like I got there, she was there kind of, you know, we had this amazing kind of Marine science fueled summer romance. And I think we both thought it was just going to be that. And then we'd go back to our, our quote normal lives back in the States and, and that would be the end of it and it just never stopped. They kept going. So it's it's a story that's still being told and I love that part.
0: Very cool. That's a great field story. I met my wife. It's my favorite story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get you get bonus points for that one.
1: Only if she watches this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll send her that clip. <laughs> well, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but at the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation topic to go forth and bring into the world. And we chatted a little bit about kind of bringing up different conversations that may be difficult to have. Is there anything else that you'd like the audience to take from your episode?
1: I think the biggest one for me is, you know we we are very fortunate to live in a society that that gives people voices to express their opinions whether it's through their vote or through, you know, giving public comment to an elected official or giving public comment at a meeting and having that capability is one that we absolutely should not squander. People should take those opportunities to vote, to get up at a meeting and express their opinion about whatever the marine conservation issue may be, whether it's Florida Keys or up here or at a national level or international level. So making sure that you take that opportunity to make your voice heard when that opportunity is available to you, I think is the thing that I would encourage people to do the most. And in the proximate future, that means making sure that you voice an opinion about things in the Florida Keys and here in the Kristen Jacobs Coral ECA.
0: Great ask. If the audience wants to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and your research, where's the best place to do so?
1: So the best place to do so is to come visit us at Harbor Branch. So thankfully, after being closed for COVID for several years, we're back to the point where we can have public tours on campus. So coming to the Ocean Discovery Visitor Center up at Harbor Branch, getting a tour of our facility is probably the, the best way to learn the most about us. But in the interim, I'm either going to Harbor Branch's webpage or my lab webpage, either of which you can find just by searching for Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute or searching for me, Joshua Voss. If you want to learn more, that's where you can learn a bit about us. And if you're a student out there, we have summer internships and graduate programs and undergraduate programs around all things marine science and coral reefs. And so if you're interested in those, come and spend time with us too.
0: Awesome. And I'll put a link to everything that you just mentioned and everything else that we chatted about in the show notes. Well, Josh, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was really fun chatting with you.
1: You too, it's good to see you and congratulations. Your show has done very well. It's
0: awesome. Thank you. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm, but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. Marinebio.life scuba for beginners. This episode is brought to you by Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. For over 50 years, FAU Harbor Branch has been in relentless pursuit of ocean science for a better world. Located in Fort Pierce, Florida, FAU Harbor Branch's cutting-edge research focuses on marine science, ecosystem conservation, aquaculture, the connection between ocean and human health, and technological innovation and national defense. During my time as part of the undergraduate Semester by the Sea program, I learned so much about the ocean and what it takes to become a good scientist. The programs and opportunities offered at FAU Harbor Branch have continued to swell since. To learn more, please visit fau.edu hboi. That's fau.edu hboi. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.